First, welcome. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I do want to thank you all for coming. Uh, it might be obvious to some, but the seat for Mr. Meadows is, will remain vacant throughout the presentation, I think, as obviously current events have kept him away uh, at this critical time. But you are at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled, What Voters Hate About Obamacare, Public Polling, and the Affordable Care Act's Impact on Healthcare Quality. Um, before we begin, if you're watching via the live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet comments to hashtag Cato events. And we will be looking for questions from Twitter as well. So again, that's hashtag Cato events. Further, last month, the Cato Institute released the new Cato Handbook for policymakers. Copies were available on the table as you came in. If you'd like additional copies, please contact me after the program. And meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs are available at cato.org. And of course, in this volume, there are six chapters dealing with healthcare, including uh, one each on ways to handle Medicare and Medicaid reforms. So I invite you to look at, through those. Um, today, of course, marks the seventh anniversary of the signing into law of the Affordable Care Act. And clearly, we are not alone in marking the significance of the day, as there is tremendous efforts to pass a reform measure in the House on this day, as everyone is well aware. But regardless of what happens, and we are hopeful more substantive changes can be made to address the problems that federally regulated health insurance faces, we want to, with this program, to do a few things. One, we'll illustrate more fulsomely what Americans want out of healthcare and the secrets in the title, healthcare. Further, we'd like to help change the conversation from focus on simply access to the improvement of healthcare itself. What conditions must exist to ensure that access doesn't just mean coverage, but also means access to affordable and, more importantly, quality healthcare? Uh, access to what is a question that has not been fully developed. Lastly, we'll illustrate why the most popular and seemingly non-negotiable measures in the ACA move us away from quality concerns that actually beggar the current system and further will ensure that federal tinkering in healthcare insurance markets will continue forever after. Let's try and avoid that. Uh, first up will be Emily Eakins, who is a research fellow and director of polling. Oh, are you not going We're first? Flipping. We're flipping. Ah, okay. Well, first up then will be Michael F. Cannon who is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy <laughs> Studies. Cannon has been described as Obama's, Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist and Obamacare's fiercest critic. The public has not firmly alighted on the name of the next incarnation, and I've seen both Trump Care and Ryan Care used uh, in equal measure. But he is a frequent guest on the national airways, and his articles have been featured in the major periodicals as well as the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine. Uh, Health Matrix, Journal of Law Medicine, Harvard Health Policy Review, the Yale Journal of Health Policy, and many, many others. He is uh, the uh, co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he advised the Senate leadership on health, education, labor, welfare, and the Second Amendment. He earned his JM in Law and Economics from George Mason University and is a member of the Board of Advisors of Harvard Health Policy Review. Uh, next will be Emily Eakins, who is a research fellow and director of polling at the Cato Institute. Her research focuses on public opinion, American politics, political psychology, and social movements. She leads the Cato Institute project on public opinion, where she designs and conducts national public opinion surveys and experiments. Emily's publications include The Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party and Public Attitudes Towards Federalism, the Public's Preference for a Renewed Federalism. She has discussed her research on Fox News and Fox Business, and her research has also appeared in the top periodicals, and she is an active member of the American Association of Public Opinion Research and American Political Science Association. She holds a PhD and MA in Political Science from the University of California, Los Angeles, and as will be clear, 
uh, she has taken her PowerPoint 2.0 course and passed with flying colors. Her PowerPoint is gorgeous. Uh, but until then, <laughs> let's please welcome Michael F. Cannon. Thanks, Peter and, uh, and, and Emily, and thanks to all of you for being here. So uh, we decided to hold this event on the seventh anniversary of the President's signing of the Affordable Care Act into law to sort of give an update on what the, uh, what the bill is doing to uh, health care and health insurance for, for people, uh, mostly in the individual health insurance market. That's about 20 million Americans. Um, uh, and uh, we, we did not expect, oh, and, and to give some counterintuitive uh, uh, findings that we've, uh, we've produced with some public opinion polling that we've done, we did not expect that the House of Representatives would be holding or trying to hold a vote on their bill that supposedly repeals and replaces the Affordable Care Act. Actually, that bill does nothing of the sort, and we can uh, talk about that some. Uh, but uh, it turns out that the House was scheduled to vote on, uh, on that bill, the American Health Care Act, today. It is a little up in the air right now about whether they will do so, because they don't yet appear to have the 216 votes they need in order to pass that bill. And so there's lots of negotiations going on. There are people shuttling back and forth to the White House, and it's not certain yet whether they will actually hold that vote today. So uh, with that as the backdrop, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the uh, Affordable Care Act's health insurance exchanges, what that means for patients, and then uh, apply that to the <laughs> negotiations that are ongoing uh, between uh, conservatives in the House and the House leadership and the, and the White House about whether they're going to pass this bill and what's going to be in the bill. So the most important thing to understand about the Affordable Care Act is that the ce its central feature, the first, uh, the, 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 the first feature that the authors of this law wanted to put in place and the feature that then ends up making all, everything else necessary, everything else flows from that one feature, is actually a bundle of provisions that uh, we call the pre-existing condition provisions or uh, community rating, guaranteed issue and community rating. And these are the provisions of the law that tell insurance companies that when you're looking at uh, people of a given age, you have, and they're uh, health insurance applicants of a given age, you have to charge them all the same premium without regard to their health status. That means that if you have uh, someone who's uh, very healthy and costs maybe only $5,000 a year to insure, and a, a very sick patient who costs maybe $61,000 a year to insure, you have to charge them both the same premium. Now, what this, this leads to all sorts of other provisions in the law, because as you can imagine, if you have to charge them the same premium, it's going to be somewhere in between $5,000 and $61,000. Let's say it's maybe a $10,000 premium. That $5,000 patient is going to see their premiums go up by $5,000. The, the $61,000 patient is going to see their premiums fall. The idea is, we impose this hidden tax, uh, this, this implicit tax on the healthy uh, uh, health insurance applicants in order to subsidize the, uh, the, the less healthy applicants by bringing their premiums down. The, because you're doing that, at the same time you're telling insurance companies you ha that they have to, char or they have to uh, cover all comers and not charge sick people of a given age any more than healthy people, this creates some pretty perverse incentives when it comes to the healthy patients. Because you, at the same time their premiums are doubling, you're telling them that the insurance, if they wait until they're sick, the insurance company has to, charge, uh, has to cover them and can't charge them any more than they would have 
uh, than they would charge anyone else. That creates a very powerful incentive for them not to buy coverage. So the Affordable Care Act also includes an individual mandate to try to force those uh, healthy people to buy coverage that is now overpriced for them in the sense it costs more than the costs that they would impose on the, uh, on the risk pool. And uh, so that's where the individual mandate comes from. The government penalizes them if they don't buy that overpriced insurance. But just because you're penalizing someone who doesn't uh, buy, uh, people who don't, uh, if they don't buy that coverage, that doesn't mean they have the resources to buy that coverage. That was Barack Obama's complaint about the individual mandate back in 2008. So the Affordable Care Act also includes subsidies to help low-income people afford those uh, overpriced insurance premiums. And the idea is that these three provisions, the uh, pre-existing conditions provision, the uh, mandate and the subsidies, will get insurance companies the resources they need to cover the $61,000 patient. Now, most people focus only on these sorts of incentives that the uh, pre-existing conditions provisions create on uh, when it comes to healthier, low-cost patients. But there are also some perverse incentives that uh, the ACA creates when it comes to uh, the $61,000 patients. And those perverse incentives end up reducing the quality of coverage for people with expensive medical conditions. And here's how. So 90% of economics consists of, answer, of asking the question, and then what? Okay, we've told insurance companies, you have to charge these $61,000 patients, and they're only going to pay a $10,000 premium. Then what happens? Well, whoever offers the best coverage for uh, the, that $61,000 patient's ailment is going to attract all of those $61,000 patients. And those $61,000 patients are going to be paying a $10,000 premium, but costing those health plans uh, $61,000 each, which is a penalty, if you think about it that way, uh, on high-quality coverage to the tune of $51,000 per patient. Now, you think, this is, this is a pretty perverse incentive right there, because if the insurance companies, because the insurance companies that offer the best coverage for, say, multiple sclerosis, end up getting penalized for doing so. The authors of the Affordable Care Act knew this. They knew that they were creating these perverse incentives, which is why they included a host of other provisions to try to get those insurance companies who have the best MS coverage $61,000 per MS patient so that there would not be this perverse incentive. So they created uh, provisions like the reinsurance program, the risk adjustment program, the risk corridors in the ACA, and other regulations that try to get the insurance companies the exact amount of money that they need in order to eliminate this perverse incentive to make coverage worse for MS patients. Because if you think about it, if they're being penalized, if whoever offers the best coverage for MS patients is attracting all those patients and racking up all of those penalties, then what are they going to do? They're either going to leave the market under the weight of all those penalties, and that is what is happening in the exchanges. We've seen lots of insurance companies leaving the market. Uh, it's now at the point where uh, a thousand counties across the country with 2.8 million exchange enrollees in them have only one insurance carrier left in the market. And there are 16 counties in Tennessee where they've all left. So there's 43,000 exchange residents, uh, I'm sorry, exchange enrollees, residents of those 16 counties who have no coverage options in the exchange for 2018 because all the insurers have left. It's because of these penalties that the Affordable Care Act imposes on plans that offer quality coverage to the sick. And, um, and so the Affordable Care Act's authors created all of these uh, subsidies to try to eliminate that perverse incentive. 
but there's research that's been done now, and those are the risk adjustment and risk corridors uh, reinsurance programs. But there's research that's been done now by scholars at Harvard University and UT Austin that look at how well the Affordable Care Act is eliminating or reducing that perverse incentive. And what they found is that for those MS patients who cost $61,000, and that's a figure from their study, they found that the Affordable Care Act is not getting those insurance companies the $61,000 they, uh, uh, they need to get to eliminate that penalty. They are only getting those insurance companies $47,000 per MS patient. What that means is there is still a $14,000 penalty that insurance companies suffer if they offer the best coverage for multiple sclerosis. So there is still this perverse incentive for the company that offers the best multiple sclerosis coverage because they're suffering from all of these penalties, this $14,000 penalty per MS patient. They're suffering all these losses. There's still these perverse incentives either to leave the market or to make their coverage worse than their competitors' coverage. If they make their coverage worse than their, their MS coverage worse than their, their competitors' coverage, then all the MS patients go to their competitor and bring down their competitor's bottom line. And then what happens the next year? Well, as you can guess, that insurance company either has to leave the market or they have to make their coverage worse than the next guy's. And so we get this race to the bottom in insurance quality for the sickest patients. This is the exact opposite of what the Affordable Care Act was trying to accomplish. It's trying to provide secure access to coverage for people with expensive medical conditions. Instead, we're getting a race to the bottom where, because the law penalizes high quality coverage for the sick. And this isn't just opponents of the law at the Cato Institute who are saying this. These are scholars at Harvard University and in UT Austin who have actually looked at what's happening in the exchanges. They have found that the drug coverage for people with multiple sclerosis is getting worse. It is worse than it is in employer plans where more comprehensive coverage is sustainable. It is getting worse over time. And the coverage for uh, patients with these expensive, sort of expensive conditions is so bad that, and it is so clearly a result of, a, of, of the Affordable Care Act's penalties on quality coverage uh, that we see things like these health plans uh, charging very high cost sharing, not just for the expensive drugs that MS patients use, but for the inexpensive generic drugs that MS patients use, not because those drugs are expensive, but because expensive patients use them. And the Affordable Care Act penalizes insurance companies if they provide coverage that's attractive to the sick and rewards insurance companies if they provide coverage that is unattractive to the sick. And it's not just Cato and the folks at Harvard and uh, UT Austin, it's also patient groups. Patient groups have known about this since the uh, exchanges came online in 2014. They've been complaining about this ever since. They have said that this sort of ongoing discrimination, which is created by the Affordable Care Act, completely undermines the, uh, the, the purpose and the promise of the Affordable Care Act. That's an almost direct quote from the I Am Essential Coalition, which represents 150 different patient groups. So, this is why uh, opponents of the ACA oppose the ACA. It's because it does not make uh, quality coverage uh, uh, or access to quality care more secure for the sick. It actually makes it less secure over time to the point where, and the logical conclusion of this race to the bottom is what we're seeing in those 16 counties in East Tennessee, where the market has completely collapsed and there are 43,000 residents, exchange enrollees, people with high cost conditions, People like uh, Melissa Nance, who has an, uh, who's a 45-year-old living in Knoxville, Tennessee, who has an aggressive form of leukemia, 
she has no coverage options in the exchange uh, for next year. She doesn't know what she's going to, where she's going to get coverage and how she's going to pay her medical bills next year. So this is, the, this is the sort of deterioration in quality that you get when the government imposes essentially a price ceiling on coverage for the sick. Uh, not too long ago, I was in the Rayburn cafeteria here in the Rayburn House office building. I had a look at the apples. They're charging $1.10, at least a few weeks ago, they were charging $1.10 for apples. What if the government imposed a binding price ceiling on apples? What if instead of letting the Rayburn cafeteria charge $1.10 for apples, they said you can only charge $0.10 cents for an apple? Those apples in the, in the uh, Rayburn cafeteria were pr pretty nice-looking apples. They were big. They looked fresh because they were able to charge $1.10. What do you think those apples would look like if they could only charge $0.10? Cents? They probably wouldn't be very nice. They probably wouldn't be very big. They might have worms in them and lots of brown spots. You might not want to eat them at all. Well, that is what is happening in the ACA's exchanges. The government is imposing a price ceiling on coverage for the sick, and the government can control the prices. The government can prohibit health insurance companies from charging higher prices, from charging uh, uh, market prices for the sick, but it cannot alter the economic reality that is underlying those higher prices. And the result is we get worse health insurance for the sick than if the government had not imposed that binding price ceiling. So this is the race at the bottom that we're seeing in the exchanges. What happens if Congress passes the Affordable Health Care Act that, 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 is, that the House leadership is trying to force through the House right now? Does it eliminate these perverse incentives? Does it eliminate this race to the bottom? Actually, it does not, because it does not eliminate the community rating price controls that impose that price ceiling on coverage for the sick and create these penalties on insurance companies that lead that provide quality coverage that lead to this race to the bottom. The only change that the House bill makes is there are really two parts of the community rating price control, two main parts. One of them is what I described before, the provision that says to an insurance company that for, insurance companies that for a pe people of a given age, you have to charge all of them the same premium regardless of health status. That's the ban on health status rating, as we call it. But there's another provision that says, and this is a provision of the Affordable Care Act, that says, that, they, that insurance companies cannot charge 64-year-olds more than three times what they charge 19-year-olds. This is what we call age rating. And because it's a factor of three there, we call it a three-to-one age rating band. They can't charge the oldest enrollees more than three times what they charge the youngest enrollees. What the American Health Care Act, the Republican leadership's bill would do, is it would keep that first price control in place, keep the ban on health rating in place, but it would widen the age bands. So, Insurance companies would be able to charge the oldest enrollees five times as much as they charge the youngest enrollees. It would relax the age rating band from a three to one ratio to a five to one ratio. Now, that is, I guess, a move toward market prices, but that is the less binding part of this price control scheme. So it would not eliminate the perverse incentives that we're talking about. In fact, the House Republican bill would exacerbate these perverse incentives and make coverage for the sick even worse than under the Affordable Care Act. Or a more precise way of putting it would be, the race to the bottom would be even faster under the, uh, under the Republican bill than under Obamacare. And here's why. Because there's another change that the Republican bill would make. It would eliminate the minimum actuarial value standard. That is the one that says, uh, the, the provision of the Affordable Care Act that says, 
that you, you cannot sell a health insurance plan that covers less than 60% of the cost of the medical care consumed by an average population. So generally, it covers 60% of people's medical bills. You cannot sell a health insurance plan that covers less than that. The Republican bill would get a, do away with that and let insurance companies and consumers buy and sell uh, health insurance plans that cover less than 60% of an average population's health care expenses. When you do that in the presence of a community-rated market, when you do that in a community-rated market, and the market would still be community-rated under the Republican bill, coverage for the sick gets worse. And here's why. We're expanding the range of health insurance options that are available to healthy people, and that's all to the good. Hooray for freedom and freedom of choice. But all the healthy people are going to gravitate toward the lower cost, low actuarial value plans, knowing that when they get sick, they can switch into the comprehensive plans, and the insurers can't charge them any more than they charge, uh, than they would have if, uh, than they charge the healthiest people in those plans. What that means is there's going to be even more adverse selection against those high or those comprehensive plans because only the high risk people or, or the, uh, the sickest patients will enroll in them. You will get even more dramatic adverse selection against those plans when you have a uh, wider range of plan options available. So those comprehensive plans will disappear. They will either drop out of the market or become less comprehensive over time in that process that I described before where insurance companies make their coverage worse and worse for the sick. So uh, one, way of put, one way of describing what the House Republican bill would do is because it, in a community-rated market, giving healthy people more options means worse coverage for the sick. That is not what happens in a market with market prices, a health insurance market with market prices. You can have secure, sustainable, comprehensive coverage for the sick. But that is impossible under the Affordable Care Act or under the Republican plan. Now, the latest offer that, uh, that, that rumor has it that the latest offer that uh, the White House has made to conservatives who are objecting that the Republican bill is not Obamacare repeal and replace, it's Obamacare light. I would actually say it's Obamacare heavy or Obamacare forever because it doesn't make any real uh, substantive um, uh, uh, changes to the most important parts of, of that law. The latest offer they made is to get rid of or to modify the essential health benefits requirement. The essential health benefits uh, 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 provisions in the Affordable Care Act is that list of 10 types of coverage that, that all plans have to cover, like maternity coverage and so forth. And what the White House has said is, well, we can get rid of that or substitute a different standard that doesn't require people to purchase as much coverage. And that'll bring premiums down a little bit. Well, that buy us your votes, they are saying to uh, uh, opponents of the uh, Republican bill in the House. The problem is the same thing happens. When you expand the choices that are available, getting rid of the essential health benefits requirement or making it more permissive expands the range of choices that are available to healthy people, uh, lets them buy less comprehensive coverage. And because the, uh, the White House is, and the House leadership is not, are not offering to get rid of community rating, in a community rated market, more choices for healthy people means worse coverage for sick people. So what will happen under the House Republicans bill, under this uh, proposal that's been made by the White House, is the race to the bottom and coverage for the sick will be even faster under the Republican bill or under the White House's uh, recent comprom so-called compromise offer than it is under Obamacare. And this really tells us, well, this, is a, this, this latest offer is important because it tells us a number of things. It tells us, number one, that where the House leadership and the White House have told Obamacare opponents that we cannot repeal all of the law, uh, we cannot repeal the regulations like community rating because of uh, the problems that that would face in the Senate 
uh, and a, a bird rule objection if we tried to do that through a uh, reconciliation bill. We can't do that with a simple majority in the Senate. Um, therefore, we can't uh, put, uh, include those things in the House repeal bill. This tells us that all of that was nonsense, that they knew that that was not true. Because by offering to make, the, to make these changes to the essential health benefits regulations, they are saying that, yes, we can uh, do these things in the Senate through reconciliation. And in fact, widening the age bands already told us that, but, uh, that, that that argument was disingenuous. But this confirms that. But this, uh, this offer by the White House to relax this, uh, uh, essential, the essential health benefits requirement also tells us that really the president is being misled by some incompetent advisors who don't understand how health insurance markets work. Uh, and he's being misled because it, relaxing these requirements will ma make coverage worse for the sick, which is exactly the opposite of what the president said that he wanted to do. He's also being misled by the, his advisors because I'm not a Republican and I don't, you know, I'm, uh, I, 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 this, this matters less to me than it does to the president. But this is going to come back and bite the Republican Party because when the coverage in the exchanges gets worse for the sick, it's going to be those patients with MS and arthritis and other expensive conditions who show up at Republican town halls and say, your free market reforms are causing my coverage to get worse. Your free market reforms are leading to discrimination against the sick. Your free market reforms have caused the exchanges to collapse in my county and in that county over there and left us all without coverage. These aren't free market reforms at all. These are Obamacare provisions that are doing this. And the president's advisors are telling him to adopt uh, changes or, or to make uh, 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 concessions to Obamacare opponents that would actually make uh, coverage for the sick worse in a way that would come back to, to, uh, to bite them. So uh, it remains to be seen whether the, uh, whether the uh, uh, conservatives in the House and the, and the House leadership in the White House will reach a compromise. But I think that the most recent, but the House bill and the most recent offers that we've seen, proffers we've seen from the administration show that uh, the people who put this bill together, indeed it's entire, do not understand the Affordable Care Act and do not understand which parts are, have to go and why they have to go. And really, if, to the extent that they're afraid to repeal the community rating provisions, the pre-existing condition provisions of this law, tells us that not only do they not understand how those operations work and what they're doing to coverage to the sick, but they also don't understand that those provisions are unpopular. We always hear that those provisions are the most popular parts of the law, but they are not the most popular parts of the law because there's a flaw with every poll that has ever been done about those provisions, except for the polls that my colleague Emily Eakins are gonna, uh, are gonna tell you about, is going to tell you about, polls that we at the Cato Institute have conducted that look at both the supposed benefits of those provisions and the costs that I've been discussing. So now I will turn it over to my colleague Emily so that she can tell you about the research that we have done on uh, uh, public opinion about those very provisions. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Michael. So I think it's useful to take a step back for just a moment. Um, we can sometimes get caught up in all the weeds um, in the details of health policy reform. And I think it's important for us to take a step back and remind ourselves what is it that people want from health care? What do they want? They want high quality care. They want care that's affordable. They want to be able to be in a situation that, if, that, that there is a way to access it if they want it, that there is some possible way to access it if they want it, and that the care that they get is secure and can't just be ripped from under them without any notice or expectation. 
Republicans focus a lot on cost. Democrats focus a lot on access and coverage in insurance markets. But what w Michael has been focusing on and what we're going to focus on a lot today is the other thing that people care so much about and that is often ignored. It's the first one, high quality care. Because when you think about it, what is your insurance policy worth if the coverage you get is bad? If you're going to have surgery, you probably want to have a good surgeon <laughs> and not a bad surgeon. So if these are the goals that people have in mind for healthcare, the ACA failed to deliver on these promises. And I think it's useful to just take a moment and to remind ourselves about what we're seeing in the exchanges. All of this is in your handout and thoroughly cited, so you can t check out the citations there. So we're see seeing that premiums are increasing in the past year for, by about 25%. We're seeing that insurers are leaving the exchanges because it's difficult for them to shoulder the cost. We've seen a 28% reduction in the number of insurers that are offering plans in the marketplace. And today, one-third of all U.S. counties have one insurer available in the marketplace. That's not really competition. <laughs> Many people are choosing not to enroll in the, ex in the exchanges, and, and instead, more people have claimed an exemption to the individual mandate or have just decided to pay the penalty and wait until they need health care in order to sign up for it, which is causing other problems in the exchanges. And then, as Michael pointed out, Research is showing us that AC, um, costly regulations in the ACA, particularly community rating and guaranteed issue rules, are causing insurers to limit access to medical treatments and access to star hospitals, surgeons, and doctors, particularly for the most vulnerable people in the United States or in the exchanges. So I'm just gonna review very briefly what he al already articulated. So, in the ACA, there's a bundle of pre-existing conditions provision, which include a variety, but I'm going to highlight two here. Community rating, which is that insurers have to charge everyone the same rates regardless of medical history and guaranteed issue, which is insurers have to um, offer coverage to anyone who applies regardless of pre-existing conditions. So what happens when you have those regulations in place? What kind of incentive structure does it create? Insurance companies make money on people who are healthy and don't cost a lot. They lose money on individuals who are sick and require a lot of medical attention. But now, with this kind of incentive structure, they know who you are before you sign up. They know if you're expensive before you sign up. And as Michael explained, insurers are losing money on the most expensive payment, uh, patients, even those despite the subsidies that they're receiving from the federal government, that's not enough to offset this. And so, since they know who you are, they know if you're expensive or not, they know that they can actively try to discourage you from signing up, if you're expensive, from their plan. And the way they do that is by limiting access to medical treatments. There's a variety of ways they can do that, sometimes not even cover it. They can also narrow the networks so that the best hospital with the best doctors with the best rates of quality are not in your network and are not covered. And this is what we're seeing, such that people who are the sickest in America, according to uh, the researchers at Harvard and UT Austin, is that some of these conditions cannot be adequately insured 
in the exchanges. These provisions, though, are touted as some of the most popular provisions in the ACA. People think the, this is the third rail. How can you possibly change these regulations? Part of it is because what they've seen in public polling. So I'll just give a little side note on polling. You've probably noticed this trend, that when people conduct a poll, they often present policies to people as though they are benefits-only propositions. Would you like a free high-speed rail train from DC to New York? Yes, I would love that. Do I want to pay an extra $100 a year to get it? Mm, maybe not. So pol um, public polling rarely inserts cost into their questions. And we have seen this throughout the debate on health care. We see questions that ask people if they like prohibiting insurers from charging some people higher rates because of their medical history. People think that's a great idea. But what they don't offer people is any idea of what the cost might be and then see, look, some people might be willing to make certain trade-offs. Why don't we ask them? So we did. At the Cato Institute, we conducted two surveys on healthcare in the past few weeks. And we started out by asking the standard question using the standard language. And we find the same results. When you ask about community rating, prohibiting insurers from charging some people higher rates based on medical history, 63% of Americans support that, just like what the Kaiser Family Foundation polling will tell you. But what they don't do is the follow-up question afterwards. So we had a series of follow-up questions. What if this meant that taxes, your taxes were increased? What if this meant that your premiums went up? What if this limited access to medical tests and treatments, exactly what the Harvard economists found in their study? Then we see support for community rating flipped, and majorities of Americans say they would oppose it. But most particularly, most dramatically, 66% would oppose community rating if it limited access to medical tests and treatments. On a separate survey, so that we didn't bias responses, we asked again, but this time about guaranteed issue. You support or oppose prohibiting and um, requiring insurers cover anyone who applies regardless of pre-existing conditions. 77% of Americans support that provision. Just like you've seen in public polling, it seems like the third rail. But then we asked a series of follow-up questions. Suppose the effect of this were to increase taxes or to increase premiums or if healthcare quality would get worse. And you see that 77% that supported guaranteed issue flips to 75% who would oppose if healthcare quality got worse. What I take from this data is that people care about taxes, yes, people care about premiums, but what they really care about is the quality of their healthcare. And that is the issue that we're not talking quite enough about. We're either talking about costs and premiums or coverage and access but we need to keep in mind the quality of healthcare. So why is the quality issue so impactful? The reason why, in part, is because it is the only cost that we see that flips Democrats from supporting regulations like community rating. There you see 82% initially support it. It's the only thing that gets them to oppose it. A majority of Democrats would be willing to pay higher taxes in order to get community rating. 
So when you tell them, we're trying to cut taxes, um, and that's why we're repealing this regulation, that is not effective because they're willing to pay higher taxes in order to get this benefit. <coughs> premiums. A majority of Democrats would be willing to pay higher premiums also. So telling them that you're going to be lowering premiums is not useful. Less access to medical treatments. We see a flip in support, and we see 62% um, oppose community rating if it limits access to medical tests and treatments. And we saw the same thing if it were to require you to wait two months to see a specialist for medically important care or just to um, have less access to top-rated medical facilities. So the reason why I think this is most important is that when you're thinking about maybe that median voter, not necessarily Democrats or Republicans or independents, that median voter, quality is the thing that they're most concerned about losing if they understand how, how these various regulations are impacting the quality of care, particularly for the most vulnerable people who need our help. So to get, um, I've kind of gone through this, but to just be more specific, we asked a series of follow-up questions to try to get at what types of quality reductions might matter to people, and so these are the things that we see. So limited access to medical tests and treatments, we see 66% oppose community rating if it were to cause that. 65% would oppose if it increased, um, or if they had to wait several months before seeing a specialist. We also see 62% opposed if it narrowed the networks of hospitals and medical facilities they were able to go to. This pattern is not new. Despite um, the striking shift, I've noticed a lot of people resist. I actually had a senator recently um, say, no, 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 no one cares about quality. That's not the way people are thinking about this. They're thinking about cost. And I was so shocked by that. Um, so I think that, that the data that we've shown you really shows that quality is really what people are very concerned about. But we see this going back to 1994 when they were having a slightly different debate about health care. Most of the survey questions back then were asking people about some variants of universal access to health care coverage. In 1994, Gallup found that 80% of Americans said that they would support a health care reform package that guaranteed every American private health insurance that could never be taken away. 80%. But what if this, suppose the effect of this were to raise your taxes? 59% would continue to support. What if your premiums went up? 55% would continue to support. The one thing that Americans were unwilling to give up was the availability of health services. So we, and, and since 1994, we've seen several other, other surveys that show the same pattern. Going back to the first few thoughts here, um, it's the first prong, healthcare quality, that we're not talking enough about. We're talking a lot about costs, or we're talking about universal coverage. Both are very important things, but we're not talking enough about quality. And how are the regulations that we've passed, or we're thinking about passing, how will those affect the quality of healthcare for everyone, but also for the most vulnerable people? Are we hurting the people we're trying to help? Healthcare gets people very emotional and riled up. And I think it's worth taking a moment when we think about healthcare quality to remember what it is that threatens healthcare quality. More government control means lower quality healthcare. And evidence.
evidence for this, one, comes from the health studies, several, several studies that uh, Michael and I have mentioned today that found that costly, the, the costly regulations in the ACA are limiting the availability of health services. Um, and those citations are in the handout if you're interested in reading the exciting paper from Niebuhr. <laughs> um, but also cross-country comparisons show that various types of government-managed universal health systems do result in lower quality care. We need to acknowledge that there's a trade-off. Clearly, we care about lowering costs. Clearly, we care, I care quite a bit about expanding coverage to healthcare. I want people to be able to access it. In efforts to achieve those goals, we don't want to sacrifice the quality of care for everyone, particularly the most vulnerable. Given the town hall meetings and the kinds of debates that we're seeing, I think it would be worthwhile to just briefly overview some of the facts that exist about comparing um, the US system to other types of systems that have even more government management and control than we have. When we think about the way forward, what direction do we wanna go? Do we think more government management is the solution? Or do we think injecting more free market mechanisms might be a new approach that might help? Just taking a moment here, what we see is government managed universal healthcare system in various ways, because they're not all the same. Um, these systems tend to have lower quality care, long lines, rationing, and fewer choices. So to give some more concrete examples, wait times um, in most Western European countries and Canada are about two to three times as long as wait times in the US to see specialists and to receive medically important procedures and surgeries. Patients in the UK and Canada are about two to three times more likely than people in the US to have their surgeries canceled. So to give an example, Richard, um, Stonehill, a star, a star Wars actor Richard Stonehill, um, recently died in the UK after his heart surgery was canceled twice because the hospital that he was scheduled to have his heart, his heart surgery in had to cancel because they were overwhelmed. They had to ration. They canceled it for two, um, the third time it was scheduled for it was February, and he died in January waiting for that surgery. When you really need health care, when you're really sick, timing matters waiting several months and rationing can make a huge difference in your life. Um, the US also has lower cancer mortality rates than the UK, France, Canada, and Germany, which is indicative of different types of, uh, which is somewhat indicative of the quality of care that Americans receive. Um, and the US also leads the world in medical innovation. And the rest of the world benefits from the innovations in pharmaceuticals, medical technologies, and treatments that are developed in the US. We can't forget about this. When we're talking about costs, we're talking about coverage, we also have to remember quality. And so far, more government control of healthcare seems to come at the expense of quality. And that's something I think we need to remember as we're deciding what trade-offs we are willing to make. I also wanted to add in another interesting finding we had in our survey about the dependent coverage mandate which requires insurers to allow um, their customers to allow their adult children up to the age of 26 stay on their health insurance policies. This is something that also has been viewed as very popular. Is it also a third rail? There's no way you could get rid of it. Well, Stanford and Harvard economists researched the financial impact of the dependent care mandate. And they found that this cost, that this reduced wages by $1,200 every year 
for individuals with employer-provided insurance, which is most people that are working, regardless of whether that worker had dependent children. So whether or not you are getting a benefit, you are paying the cost of $1,200 a year. Now some people may say that's okay with them. They might be willing to pay that. So we decided to put it to the test in a poll. So we asked first, with no mention of costs, the standard question the way other pollsters ask it, do you favor or oppose a provision in the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare that allows young adults to stay on their parents' insurance plans until the age of 26? And 72% support that, just like all the other polls. But then we followed up and asked, what if this cost you an additional $1,200 a year? Support flips, and 58% oppose the dependent coverage mandate that just a few minutes prior, they were very gung-ho about. <clears throat> so I think the kind of the lesson from the survey data demonstrates to us that obviously people like benefits that we try to offer them through legislation. But we have to be honest with them about what those benefits will cost them, either in financial terms or in, um, or in terms of quality. We need to be honest about that. And some people are willing to make those sacrifices, some people are not. <coughs> What's unfair is to ask them to make blind sacrifices when they don't know what they're getting into. So going back to our original goals, what people want from healthcare, how do we deliver this? It's gonna require us repealing these, what we originally thought were popular ACA provisions. And it's going to be hard, but it's necessary in order to reduce costs, in order to improve the quality of healthcare for the, for the people who need it most. And it will enable us to actually address the core sources of the problems in healthcare that we need to address to make healthcare more secure that people aren't constantly having to change their health insurance all the time, perhaps it would be affordable. For us to ensure that healthcare quality improves and people have better access to treatment and to actually address the source of what's increasing cost in healthcare. Right now, no one knows what anything costs. If you ask your doctor, how much does this cost? They don't know. And no one in that office can tell you and neither can your insurance company. I've tried. <laughs> um, so we need to be thinking about um, what we need to do in order to get to the system that we want. It's going to require some tough choices where we have to repeal certain regulations that we thought were popular, but when people face the costs and the consequences, they are far less popular, and we need to be able to explain that to the general public. Um, in order to get to where we want, we're gonna have to inject more free market mechanisms into the system. This is the one approach that we haven't taken. We've tried everything under the sun when it comes to more government management of the system. But what we haven't tried is actually trying to take a more free market approach to healthcare. So in the survey, we asked people what they thought was the better way forward when it comes to healthcare. What is the better way? And we were very straightforward. What is the better way to sustainably provide high-quality, affordable health insurance to people, more government management of insurance companies, doctors, and hospitals, or more free market competition of insurance companies, doctors, and hospitals. And we see that 55% say that more free market competition is the better way to, to move forward. And this result is not an anomaly. I was digging through the data at the Kaiser Family Foundation, and they found a very similar result. 
and people were asking, when they asked um, Americans in a survey, what's the better way to reduce prescription drug prices? And about the same share said that they thought that free market competition would do a better job at controlling the cost of prescription drug prices than more government regulation of the system. Um, so given this data, I think it's really important for us to be having conversations, not just here on Capitol Hill, but with the broader American public, and explain to them that, yes, there are various benefits we try to offer through government legislation, but at the same time, there are also costs. We want to be honest about those costs. And the one approach we really haven't tried yet is trying to inject more free market mechanisms into the system. And this is something that Americans are, are open to, but we have to explain it. Um, and when emotions run high, like they are right now, sometimes that can be difficult. But I think having starting this conversation is the right way to move forward. I think we're open up for a Q&A. Yep. All right. Thank you. <clears throat>